Well, good morning again. Uh, glad that you're here. If you're here in this place, uh, certainly glad to see you and to worship alongside you. For those of you guys that are gathering on our online campus, hopefully this is a good experience for you and you're encouraged along the way. And, and we'd love to see you uh, in person when you're ready and you're able and you're in the area. If you are just a regular part of the Crossroads family, it's always good to see and worship alongside you guys. If, you, if you're a ray or if you're a guest or maybe newer, maybe this is even your first Sunday, hopefully you feel more like family when you leave than when you, uh, than when you came. Uh, my name is Brian Robertson. I'm the lead pastor here, and so I'm very grateful to worship alongside of each of us. Uh, there's a communication card in your worship folder, uh, and if you uh, want to connect in various deeper ways with us, fill that out and drop that in the offering boxes, and we can connect with you this coming week and love to kind of do that with you. But we are in the middle of a teaching series that we're calling Made New. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you or an app on your phone or something you want to maybe turn there, we're going to be reading and studying in that uh, a little bit this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember uh, that we talked about that the Christian life is not just a set of doctrinal beliefs. Uh, while those are important, it's important to have the right beliefs, it's it's about a way of living, that the Christian life is a way of living in the way of Christ, that we would learn to do our life the way Christ would do it if he were living our life. He was doing the things that we were doing, going the places we were going, in the manner of Christ that we would learn to routinely and easily do his life if he were living our life. This is what the Christian life is about. It's not just about right beliefs or doctrines, but it's a way of living. And those doctrines, those beliefs, those thinking, those ways of understanding the world implicate our relationships. They, they, have a, they have a ramification, in other words, on how we spend our time, how we spend our relationships, how we spend our money and everything else is all centered around the person of Jesus. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning, the last part of Ephesians chapter 5, has been hotly debated for a long time. It's been used to highlight the roles of men and women, particularly in marriage, uh, but also extending into the rest of culture. It's really been used to kind of pigeonhole uh, one gender over the other gender, and that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because that's not what this section is all about. We'll see in just a moment when we read and kind of study into Ephesians chapter 5. It's not about cultural roles, but it's about how we treat one another in light of the truth that we are one and we are set underneath the headship of Christ. In light of the fact, as we've been studying, as we've been memorizing, if you've been following along with us in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do, the fact that we are God's handiwork, how do we live that out? And the, the works with he is, which he has called us to do, he reminds us in Ephesians 1, is that we are to bring unity, oneness, peace to all of humanity, all of creation, under the leadership of Christ. That we are to do this in conjunction with one another. What does that look like for us? Well, Ephesians 5 gives us a, a glimpse of what that looks like. That we're to bring unity and peace to all things. And unfortunately, if you've been around the church, if you've heard this passage said or taught a, a handful of times, oftentimes this passage of Scripture is taught in a way that just simply perpetuates cultural norms of the 1950s. 
about who goes to work and who stays home and who makes the decisions and who drives the car and all those various different things. And I say unfortunately because that, uh, that understanding of the scripture, that way of understanding and unpacking it, really robs it of the potency with which Paul wrote this scripture. It robs it of the direction that Paul is driving us to in all of Ephesians and into Ephesians chapter 5. And part of the reason, I think, part of the problem is that in order to help understand or read the Scripture when translators translated it into English, they had to do the work of making sentence structure and putting little verse marks in it and, and sub, uh, making things into uh, paragraph forms and subject headings and those kinds of things. And most of the time, those paragraphs and those sentence structures are very helpful. Most of the time, they really are. They can help us to understand how things are going and how things are flowing. But sometimes, occasionally, they can allow for things to be missed in the original context. If you have a, a paper Bible with you, you, you might see that right above verse 21 or right verse, verse 20, uh, right around that little area, there's a little header. It's either bold or italics in your Bibles. Uh, and you may not know this, but you should know this, that those are not actually part of the Scripture. Those are inserted in there by translators to help you understand how to organize things. And most of the time, like I said, they're helpful, but occasionally they can draw us away from the original context of really what's going on. And unfortunately, we've missed the original potency or the power of the Scripture, and it can lead us to misunderstanding what Paul is trying to get at. So this morning, rather than trying to misunderstand things, let's read the whole Scripture. Let's read all of it within its context, because what we'll see is not that as uh, family roles are subjugating one under another, but that understanding of roles that we see in verses 22 and on find its context in verse 21, which we'll read in just a moment, but he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, obviously, we, we miss, when we miss the original context, we just look at wives submitting and husbands loving, and we take that out of the context of the submission to one another, that Paul says, that would be manifested because of our life in Christ. So in order to kind of understand the whole thing, we're going to read the entire passage, the whole context of it, and we're going to pull ourselves all the way back to verse 18. So Ephesians chapter eight, 5, verses 18 to the end, which is verse 33. And so you can follow along on the screens, or if you have a Bible with you or an app, like I said, follow along with me. But starting in verse 18, Paul says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Sorry, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you should, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, this is a power-laced passage of Scripture. Tons of things in here. And like I said, if you've been around, you've probably heard a message or two on this. And you may have even gotten getting a little uneasy as we begin to kind of lean into this passage. But as our commitment to speak and to teach the entire Scripture of what God is calling us to, we're going to go right squarely into this issue and right squarely into what Paul is calling us to as followers of Jesus. And it's important to notice right at the very beginning that he sets up a contrast. Before he gets into all of the wives and husbands stuff, and in chapter 6 he'll talk about children and parents, before he gets into all that, he sets up a contrast between what he says is being drunk on wine and being filled by the Spirit. The contrast here, drunk on wine or filled by the Spirit. In other words, he's trying to say there's a way to follow the flesh, follow the ways of of the culture and the flesh that does not lead to the eternal quality of life that you've been created for. He calls that drunk on wine, right? And then there's a way to be filled by the Spirit, to be directed by the Spirit of God that's going to fulfill a, a life that is a quality of life that is eternal and good and nurturing for all that we have said. Let me say one thing before we jump into the whole the contrast thing here. Because it's really clear, both in this passage, but also the rest of Scripture, that the straightforward teaching of Scripture is that we ought not to be drunk on wine, like literally drunk on wine. That's a good teaching that we ought to hold on to and not just think, oh, that was some old day ago thing. No, it is a good teaching, straightforward teaching, that we are not to be controlled by wine or by anything else. To be controlled by an external substance would not lead to the quality of life that God has called us to. It will lead us towards brokenness, towards lewdness, towards all sorts of other debauchery and bad things. So we are not to be drunk. Straightforward teaching, good. Let's hold on to that and move on with it. But like much of Scripture, much of the teaching of Scripture, it gets lower than that. It gets deeper than that. That there was a lot of drinking going on. Some of it was just cultural, but a lot of it was ritualistic towards pagan worship. So the straightforward Paul's teaching right away says, don't be a part of that. Don't be drunk. But then he gets a little bit deeper. He says, don't be filled with anything other than the purposes of God. Don't be influenced, in other words, towards anything except the purposes of God. And he uses a word here that most of us don't use from day to day, right? He uses the word debauchery, which is, means wickedness, or it means depravity. It means all sorts of bad stuff that's going to lead towards, right? So Paul's main point here at the very beginning is do not let yourself be controlled by anything external, and there are other external forces that we could have placed in here, not just drunk on wine. Alcohol is one example, but there are others. Gambling, right? Materialism, sex, sensuality, 
That whenever we're controlled by those external forces, whenever we're controlled by those external things, it will lead us towards destructive behavior, to what Paul says is debauchery. It would lead us towards lewdness. It would lead us towards a brokenness, not towards the quality of life that God has called us to. So Paul says, do not be controlled or filled or drunk on wine, but be filled by the Spirit. As followers of Jesus, don't be controlled by other things, but be controlled by the Spirit of God himself. Only be emphasizing his purposes. And again, I told you this is a power-laced passage. For if you've been around the church any length of time, you hear, start hearing phrases like being filled by the Spirit. Your mind may be drawn towards various things. You may have a picture in your mind about what it means to be slain in the Spirit or to be filled with the Spirit in such a way where your body just gets an uncontrolled behavior. You start running around and things start screaming. You start doing other things and otherwise you just lose control. You're just completely filled and slain by the Spirit of some kind. And that's not what Paul's saying either. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, what does it look like to be controlled in such a way that your heart and your spirit is controlled by, by the Spirit of God in such a way that you're in keeping with His purposes throughout your life? Not controlled by any external forces, not controlled by anything that He would call as drunk on wine, but be filled by the Spirit. Doesn't seem mean that you lose control of everything, but it means that you are keeping in step with God's purposes all along. And if we remember our study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, he says that the purposes of God are to the mystery of God is to bring oneness to all people under the headship of Christ. He's to bring oneness and unity and peace to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the mystery, the purpose of God. And so when we are filled by the Spirit of God, we are filled with that purpose. We are filled with the purpose of bringing oneness and peace to all things on heaven and earth under Christ. That we lead our life in that way and we prioritize those things in our life. So Paul sets up this contrast in Ephesians 5. Don't be drunk on wine filled by the external purposes of the world, but be controlled by the purposes of God, filled by the Spirit. And then he gives us three indicators about what that looks like, about what filled with the Spirit would look like. The first two he gives in kind of rapid succession, and then the third one he spends a little bit more time unpacking, which is what we're going to do. We're going to look at all three of them this morning, the first two kind of rapidly, and then the third one kind of unpack it a little bit more as he goes from there. So the first indicator that he tells us is in verse 19. He says that we are to be a worshiping people. Verse 19, he says this, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. In other words, how we speak to one another matters. How we teach one another, the words that we say to one another, the songs we sing to one another matter. We are a worshiping people. We praise God and we worship God in the company of God's people because doing that guards our hearts away from external forces and reminds us of who we are in Christ. So to be filled by the Spirit means that our attention is drawn to the, God, to the God of the universe in communal acts of praise and worship and singing and speaking to one another and teaching one another and reading Scripture with one another, that we are a worshiping people, that we ought not be isolated in our own little cocoon, but we come together with brothers and sisters on a regular basis to worship and to center our hearts and our thoughts and our minds on Christ because we are worshiping people caught up in his purposes to bring oneness and peace to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. Notice the communal language here. He says, you speak to one another 
sing songs to one another. There's this communal nature here of worship. So the first thing, first indicator that we are growing in our life filled with the Spirit is that we would be a worshiping people, that we'd give glory back to God all the wrong, and we'd do it together. Second indicator would be that we'd be a grateful people. Look at verse 20. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, to be filled with the Spirit means our hearts are overflowing with gratitude. We see everything in the world, in our life, and what's happening in light of God's governance to bring about good and his plans and his purposes. It's not that we had never experienced suffering. We do. But it's that the joy that we experience knowing Christ and the victory that is ours because of him overshadows any of the suffering that we are to live with gratitude in our hearts, always praising God for the goodness and the mercies and the presence of his spirit with us. So we choose gratitude. In the language of Ephesians 4, we put on gratitude. We put it on we discipline our minds towards the goodness and the provisions of God in the midst of all the things that are going on in our life. So people that are filled with the Spirit of God, that are filled upon the purposes of God, would be a worshiping people, and they'd be a grateful people. And then he spends a little bit more time unpacking this third indicator. And the third indicator is that we would be a submitting people. Look at verse 21. And this is the key phrase. This is the key passage that gives context for the rest of the passage, the rest of the chapter here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul's right about to head right into the last part of the chapter. He's going to have something to say to wives. He's going to have something to say to husbands. And for those of you guys that aren't married, you're thinking, good, it gets me off the hook. No, that's not true. Because this is for all of us, married or not married. How do we live with one another, right? We learn to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's this overarching teaching, this other-centeredness that finds its way towards mutual submission. And that kind of living is restorative. It calls out the beauty in each person. Each person is being made in the image of God. And this mutual submission, this other-centeredness, calls out that beauty and it calls out the oneness that we've been created to live into. And to fully understand what Paul's teaching here about fullness submitting to one another, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Paul was a, a, a devout Hebrew and he was, knew his scriptures. He was actually a Pharisee and he knew the scriptures. He knew the teachings of the Old Testament. So this is all influenced by his understanding of the very, very beginning. So bear with me a little bit. We'll go all the way back and we'll make a fast track to get us up to, caught up to speed. But in Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his image. Male and female, he creates humanity in his image. And that unity, the oneness that they experienced was the same oneness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we've been made in his image to reflect the joy and the glory of community, the joy, the joy and the oneness of God himself. Genesis chapter 2, we're told how this creation actually fleshes out, that the man and the woman were both naked, Scripture says, and felt no shame, totally vulnerable with one another. There was no hierarchy, there was no competition, there was no power struggles, but they lived in constant union, full of joy between one another and between them and God. 
And then Genesis chapter 3 happens, and it all changes. For in Genesis chapter 3, we see the temptation from the serpent, first to Eve and then to Adam, and they violated God's command, and their eyes of the people were opened, and immediately they felt shame. And the brokenness entered into the world. And brokenness entered into their relationship. This is what Genesis 3 was what scholars and theologians have down through the ages called the fall. The fall. Brokenness entered into our relationship. And three things happened as a result of the fall. First, humanity hid. We hid from each other and we hid from God. And in our hiding, the second thing, we blamed each other. We blamed first the serpent for what he had done. Then we blamed each other. And we continue to blame one another even today. And the third thing, we hid and then we blamed and then we suffered. Part of the suffering was a break in the mutuality of relationship that was intended in the very beginning. It would not, no longer be known for this mutual oneness, this working together partnership that was created in the very beginning, but now it would be known as a power over and a power struggle and a hierarchy. Eve is told that not only there will be pain in childbearing, but there, her desire would be for her husband, but he will rule over you, I said. It's part of the break. That's part of the fall. But God's intention on the very beginning when God's creation was that humanity, both men and women, would live in perfect unity, oneness with one another. But the fall disrupted that. The fall broke that. And the relationship between men and women has been broken ever since. Some going so far as saying that superior, that one gender is superior than the other, higher than the other, almost by God's making that way. But that's how the world that Paul lived in. A world of power struggle, of hierarchy, of domination over one over the other. And that's kind of like the world we live in, isn't it? Men and, women, men and women living in a power struggle, trying to gain one hand over the other. But that's not God's original intent. That's not the oneness. That's not the community that God created at the very beginning. And when Jesus reestablishes his community and brings people into his community, a community not bound by cultural adherences, not bound by birthright, not bound by your gender, not bound by anything else except the love of God expressed in Christ that brings all of us together in peace and unity under the headship of Christ that would express the, the unity that is expressed in the Trinity— when, when Jesus reestablishes that community, when we are to step into there and be filled with his spirit, filled with his purposes, then we ought to be live, living in a community where we don't push our way ahead, where we don't try and dominate over people, we don't demand our authority, but we learn to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We learn to submit to one another, to learn in, to live in community with one another. And then Paul's going to lay it all out in the rest of the passage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. And when he's saying this, he's putting a gospel, grace-centered message over the household codes of the day that had men doing their roles and women doing their roles. And Paul says it's not about that. It's about lay your life down for one another, mutually submit 
to one another. Christian households, Christ-honoring households, households that are centered on the person and the kingdom of God are no longer households that are held together by a power struggle, hierarchical, one over the other, one ruling and one always submitting, one that's superior and one that's always inferior, but it's a place of oneness, togetherness, community, mutually submitting for the betterment of each other that can only be described in the, in the person of Christ and only brought together because of his grace. This was in Paul's day, and it is today. Radical teaching. Radical teaching. Paul says in this whole section here, do not allow external forces to shape your relationships, but instead be filled by the Spirit of God. Be filled by His purposes. Be filled by His way of living. Don't allow the cultural norms and the things going around to be to influence your relationships, but be filled by the purposes of God that is seen from the very beginning of oneness, of submission, of community, of other-centeredness. Spirit-filled people have their focus on God. They want the glory on God because he deserves it, not on me. Spirit-filled people in line with the Spirit of God are, are not claiming for power or glory for me, but learning to give that glory back to the one who deserves it, namely Christ. Spirit-filled people are a grateful people, letting go of entitlement or achievement or things that I deserve because I have such a power or such authority or such position. I let go of all that and I learn to live with thankfulness, gratefulness, and humility. Spirit-filled people are people who live for the benefit of others, who learn to submit their ways and say, it's not just about me, but how can I live for you? How can I uplift and see the glory of God in you? How can I call out the goodness of God in you? So the invitation that Paul has for us in Ephesians here is to use the freedom that we have in Christ to learn to love and serve one another. And in that way, to use his words, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't be influenced by the external forces, but be influenced by the Spirit, by the purposes, and by the person of God. And if we're going to grow to be a worshiping, grateful, submitting people, those are things we're going to have to practice. We're going to have to put forth effort in this life with Christ. It's not that you can just say a prayer today and, and wake up tomorrow and be a, a loving oneness in your marriage. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by saying a magical incantation or prayer. But it happens by effort cooperating with the Spirit of God as we willingly, regularly do what Christ is calling us to do. So we learn to be a worshiping people. We learn to be a grateful people. And we learn to be a submitting people. Choose to enter worship, in other words. Allow the words of the songs and the teaching and the prayers to draw your heart back to glorify God and to declare His holiness and goodness. Participate in the worship as we gather. Choose to put on gratitude in the morning, to focus your attention on the goodness of God in your life rather than all the things that seem to be going wrong. Choose to grow in this area and willingly submit yourselves to those around you. Let go of the need to have a power struggle, but in love and in humility, serve and celebrate and call out the image of God in one another. 
That's what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. That's what it looks like to be walking in step of His purposes where He will bring union to all things and oneness to all things under Christ. That's what I pray for. Not only in my marriage, not only in our friendships, but in our church. That we would be a growing people filled with the purposes and the Spirit of God. And it would ever so slightly transform us to be kingdom people right now in the everyday life. Let me pray for us and for you. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us and lead and mold us to be a people who submit, who worship, and who are grateful. Pray for forgiveness for times when we have sought power at the cost of relationship, that we have sought to one-up people rather than call out the goodness in others. Lead us to a holy way. Lead us to a way that is redemptive and restorative. And we ask this all in your name. Amen.